Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry, coming to you again from the inland Pacific Northwest. Today's the 28th, May 2019, and we are on a long trek uh, while we're discussing hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, this is segment five of this series, and I thought I was going to finish with five, but it looks like we're going to be have to, having to extend it, which is fine because it's a very complicated disease, and it also allows me to do a lot of um, introspection about how pathophysiological issues like a disease state have underlying biochemical activity that is far more complicated than just simply understanding metabolic pathways. We've been going through this now for some time. We started out talking about fibrogenesis and fibrosis, the various stages of uh, fibrosis leading perhaps sometimes to cirrhosis, damage to the liver, damage to the liver DNA, hepatocytic DNA, eventually leading to all different phases of rearrangements of molecular signatures that led to leads to hepatocellular carcinoma and all the sequelae that involve, including death. Um, we carried you through some of the cell biology, some of the pathophysiology, talked a little bit about the immunology. We're going to do that a lot more extensively as time goes on. But then I got deeply into metabolic biochemistry, that is pathobiochemistry. It's a term I I guess I've coined, I don't know if it's out there in the literature, but I call it pathobiochemistry, just like pathophysiology. That's where biochemistry has taken um, various short-circuited pathways, leading ultimately to a disruption or dysfunction of the cellular biochemistry of a given tissue or even an organ or an entire body, leading then to often some kind of disease state. I spent a lot of time talking about metabolic diseases in my biochemistry courses uh, over the last three decades. And particularly, I like to talk about uh, lipid dysfunctional diseases. Uh, of course, obesity being a causal factor in a lot of those diseases and obesity being an end, uh, epidemic worldwide now. Uh, we talk a lot about type 2 diabetes. I've, I've given several lectures on that. I've also talked about immune diseases related to lipid dysfunction uh, and, of course, uh, a whole host of cancers and um, cardiovascular disease. I've co covered a lot of that ground. I've also talked uh, specifically about a cellular, hepatocellular carcinoma in other series that I've covered in my Vera Med lectures and, of course, as I said, as professor at university. So anyways, we're on hepatocellular carcinoma. We've been, if you've been following along, we got to the point where we started discussing a specific um, cofactor that was basically discovered um, by studying cancer. And it's called the P53 inducible um, uh, uh, gene uh, uh, glycolysis and apoptosis regulator. Excuse me, let me say it again. TP53 induced Glycolysis and Apoptosis Regulator, or TIGAR, T-I-G-A-R. And last time we covered quite a bit of it. I told you the TIGAR expression lowered fructose 2,6-bisphosphate levels in cells. That results in an inhibition or a lack of induction of glycolysis because you don't get the allosteric um, amplification of the activity of phosphofructokinase 1 because you lowered fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. 
uh, and overall that causes a decrease in intracellular reactive oxygen species associated with an inhibition of glycolysis, that aerobic glycolysis of Arberg effect we talk about in cancer. Uh, then I went on to tell you that there was a little bit more to it than that. <laughs> um, we finished it off by talking about how carcinoma cells overexpress Tigar, and when they do, they have reduced glucose uptake and lactate production. But we mentioned that fibroblasts in culture with Tigar overexpressing carcinoma cells actually induce the hypoxia-inducible factor, 1-alpha. And with that activation of HIF-1-alpha, you get an increased glucose uptake. Now, this is in the fibroblast. And that increases, actually, the gene 6-phosphofructose-2-kinase-fructose-2-6-bisphosphatase, that is the PFK2, FBPase2. When you overexpress that by functional uh, enzyme and you have the right amplification scheme for the pathway, in the vectorial direction, such as the production of fructose-2,6-bisphosphate, what you end up getting then is an amplification of the signal towards glycolysis. So while glycolysis is inhibited uh, in uh, hepatocellular carcinoma cells, hepatocytes, which are expressing Tigar, when fibroblasts express Tigar, the opposite occurs because a different isoform of that PFK2, FBPase2, is made and it's PFK FB3 isoform. And when you do that, you also get the induction of lactic dehydrogenase A expression, and you're on your way to frank aerobic glycolysis in those fibroblasts. So that's actually not a good thing. Unfortunately, it means that Tigar expression can sometimes promote tumor growth, particularly when you get this metabolic compartmentalization, when it happens in the fibroblast. And you also get what's called a mitochondrial metabolic phenotype with that, because you get an enhancement of lactate utilization and glutamine catabolism, and that is uh, more leading to reactive oxygen species, more leading to disease state um, progressing towards the pedicellular carcinoma. That's where we stopped last time. So now I want to tell you about two more papers. One of them was published in Biotechnology, Applied Biochemistry. Uh, actually, it was published just a few weeks ago, or actually one week ago, uh, 2019. The actual date for publication is May 22. Now, it's talking about one of these RNA molecules which interfere with the expression of other genes. This one's called MIR885-5P. 80, so that interfering RNA species potentiated the accessibility of the Targar promoter to transcriptional factors and it facilitates, therefore, of course, because you get chromatin remodeling, Tigar expression. So the MIR-885-5P 885, and its precursor, which is another RNA, both can interact mechanically, or that is physical chemically, with the Tigar promoter binding site, and that alters local chromatin structure. As I said, chromatin remodeling, and subsequently it upregulates Tigar expression and participates, therefore, in modulating liver tumorigenesis. Okay, so you can see there that there's, a, there's always another component and you don't know it until you start analyzing the system. So that was in that paper. Another paper published uh, in Biochem Biophys Research Communications. Um, this one was actually published a few years back in 2013. And the title of it kind of tells you everything. The knockdown of Tigar by RNA interference induces apoptosis and autophagy in HEP-G2 
which are hepatocellular carcinoma cells. This is one of the paradigmatic uh, papers which showed that if you knock down TIGAR, right, by RNA interference, you induce apoptosis and autophagy. And that's a good thing because those are in the hepatocytes, which are car- uh, carcinoma cells. And there they have, they showed conclusively, it's a 2013 paper in Biochem Biophys Research Communications. Uh, it's um, volume 26, uh, 437, pages 300, 306, that paper exactly. And what it said was the silencing of TIGAR by RNAi, RNA interference, in these HEPG2 cells, which men are, remember, hepatocellular carcinoma cells, regulates both the TIGAR messenger RNA, knocks it down 75%, and the protein levels about 80%, so those are coherent, and led to the inhibition of cell growth at a p-value of 0.01, which is really good, uh, uh, by apoptosis and autophagy. So um, TIGAR can increase ROS levels in HEPG2 cells, Targeted silencing of TIGAR induces this apoptotic and autophagic cell death and have G2 cells, therefore increasing TIGAR siRNA in patients with hepatocellular carcinoma may actually be something to look into, okay? So you get the idea of how this functions. All right. Now, <clears throat> back to our discussion of uh, pyruvate kinase M2. This is going to lead back to this, and you'll see why in a minute. Remember that protein kinase M2 is overexpressed in cancerous systems, particularly in this case, hepatocellular carcinoma. And it catalyzes the reaction, of course, of pyruvate kinase, which is the synthesis of pyruvate from phosphenylpyruvate and ATP, or ADP, making pyruvate and ATP. That's the product of the reaction. But it does a lot of other things. Uh, we talked about some of the other effects in the nucleus. Now, check this out. PKM2 actually catalyzes the phosphorylation of histone H3. And when it does it, it promotes the transcription of two genes, CCND1 and CMYC. CMYC, of course, is a proto-oncogene. Now, what is this CCND1? Well, it's a cyclin. And cyclins, of course, regulate cyclin kinases. This is in cell cycle, right? They're called CDK kinases. So CCND1 forms a complex with and functions as a regulatory subunit of one of these cyclin kinases called CDK4. It also regulates CDK6. The activity of each of those is required for cell cycle G1 to S phase progression to DNA synthesis progression. So the protein has been shown to interact with tumor suppressor protein RB. That's kind of like uh, a hallmark of control over uh, tumorigenesis. And it also uh, controls the expression of this gene and is regulated positively by RB, okay, by that tumor suppressor gene. Now, mutations, amplification, and overexpression of the CCND1. Okay, so this isn't the normal physiology. This is pathophysiology, pathobiochemistry now. Mutations, amplification, overexpression of that gene alters cell cycle progression, and it's observed frequently in a variety of tumors that may, of course, contribute to tumorogenesis. So that's that's the important uh, take-home message here. Now, now, understand this. How do you get this PKM2 expressed? 
One of the ways is through the EGF, EGFR system, right? Uh, epidermal growth factor. Epidermal growth factor binds to its receptor. The receptor autophosphorylates. It induces PKM2 to move into the nucleus. PKM2 moves into the nucleus and it binds to a transcriptional complex, which includes this um, histone 3, HDAC3, and promoter regions of certain DNA. When you, when you cause that HDAC, um, uh, when you cause that phosphorylation of H3, remember I told you that this cyclin will induce the phosphorylation of the histone 3, now associated with the chromatin in a specific locus. The HDAC leaves that, that uh, promoter complex. You can't deacetylate, okay? So that, in other words, that promoter is on, full on, because you can't deacetylate. It's what HDACs do. And that what that does is it derepresses the expression and therefore promotes the expression of those two oncogenes, CCND1 and CMYK. You get that, you get that messenger RNA made, you get that protein synthesized, and you get an uptick in hepatocellular carcinoma. So that's the problem with that. So PKM2 acts as a transcriptional modulator by inducing the cyclin. Uh, CCND1 and also the CMYC, both of which act as transcriptional regulators because of the change in the complex, because of the phosphorylation of the histone 3 induced by the PKM2, and in so doing, releasing the HDAC, which would normally deacetylate that uh, pr promotion, that, that portion of the promoter region of the two genes, CCND1 and MYC. And what that does in is promoting hepatocellular carcinoma. So that's not, that's all related to this PKM2. Okay. Now there's more to it than that. Okay. There's another uh, gene called CIRC-MAT2B, and it is upregulated, and its expression level upregulates another interfering RNA called MIR338-3P. So CIRC mat 2 b upregulated expression the level upregulated the expression levels of this under interfering RNA called MIR 338-3P, and what that does is target the gene PKM2. Now this comes out of a paper uh, published in the journal Hepatology of 2019, April 20th. Okay, so it's a brand new publication. Now what happens here because of all of this is glycolysis and hepatocellular carcinoma are promoted, okay? So CIRC-MAT2B promotes HCC progression by enhanced glycolysis via the activation of the CIRC-MAT2B MIR-338-3P 38, PKM2 axis, okay? And all of that under hypoxia conditions, which is common in tumors. So maybe that means we have yet a new therapeutic target. So let me explain how this works. This CIRC-MAT2B interacts with the MIR-338-3P. Remember, the MIR is interfering RNA. When it does that, it will form a complex between the CIRC-MAT2B and MIR-338-3P. And when it does that, it allows for the completion of glycolysis <coughs> because PKM2 is not inhibited, and I'll explain why in a moment. And you get a big, huge increase in cellular carcinoma progression. Now, what can happen is the MIR-338-3P can do an alternate RNA interference, okay? 
rather than interacting with the Cirque Mat 2B, which is the bad player here, it can, a mirror 338 3P can form a sense antisense complex with the transcript for PKM2. When it does that, it silences PKM2, right? It takes out that, that messenger RNA. You get no glycolytic completion and you get tanking of the progression of hepatocellular carcinoma. So you get the idea. If you upregulate that circmat 2 b and it reacts with the mir 338 3P, what that will do is pull that mir 338 3P out. If it's pulled out because of that complex, you'll get an increase in the progression of cancer, of hepatocellular carcinoma. So what you want to do then is not have that circmat 2 b expressed because then the mir 338 3P will alternatively RNA interfere with the PKM2 messenger RNA. You get no glycolytic completion and you get a tanking of the progression of hepatocellular carcinoma. So I hope you got that, okay? All right, so let's move on here. Another thing we want to understand is that CMYK, one of those genes that's turned on, remember, with that CCND1 that we talked about just a moment ago because of PKM2 and the removal of the HDAC. CMYK also enhances glycolysis, okay? So that's, that's a really important thing. And not only that, it also regulates glutaminolysis, okay? So glucose comes in to the hepatocyte, um, because of the uptick of GLUT transporter, which is turned on by CMYK. CMYK also allows for the transcription of PKM2. It also allows for the transcription of the lactate dehydrogenase. Okay, It also uh, induces a, a protein kinase uh, K, uh, PDK1, and that activates um, uh, the system in the TCA cycle uh, generating more pyruvate dehydrogenase activity, and so that you get both the production of uh, oxalacetic acid and acetyl-CoA, both of which can then complete the TCA cycle. So what happens here is that CMYK binds to a transcription factor, and ultimately it induces glutaminolysis and glycolysis. Now, the reason it enhances glutaminolysis is because you're running the TCA cycle and you're getting to the level of alpha-ketoglutarate um, and alpha-ketoglutarate will feed back into malate, OAA, backed into the condensation with acetyl-CoA to citrate, running the TCA cycle rampantly. Um, but, the alpha, but the way you get the alpha-ketoglutarate isn't just by synthesis of the TCA cycle, the turning the TCA cycle. You get an enhancement of the uptake of glutamine. Okay, and so the reason you get an uptake of glutamine into the, the hepatocyte is because CMYK turns on yet another gene. It turns on the SLC1A5. That, of course, is a sodium-dependent neutral amino acid transporter. So that's going to increase glutamine uptake in the hepatocyte. Okay? It's going to increase that. Glutamine is going to be converted to glutamate. Glutamate then is going to go through a, a, a amino aspartate uh, that is a, um, a a transfer of the amino group from glutamate to aspartic acid and the synthesis of that keto acid alpha ketoglutarate. So that's a transamination reaction. Okay, 
So it's, it's called glutamate, uh, alpha-ketoglutarate or glutamate aspartate uh, uh, transferase, or it is simply just an amino transferase reaction or a transaminase reaction, which is common in the, uh, in the mitochondria of all cells. Once you bring in glutamine, you can make more alpha-ketoglutarate. Once you make more alpha-ketoglutarate, you run that TCA cycle, keep on cranking it, and all of that then uh, triggers the utilization of glutamine, all of which is a danger zone for hepatocellular carcinoma. So that's where C-MYC comes in, okay? I wanted to get that idea. Now, what about some other genes? What other genes might be involved in hepatocellular carcinoma? I mean, obviously, we've talked about a lot of them, but and all, we have not exhausted this, all right? And I just want to bring up a few more. I'm not going to go through papers on each one of these. But endoleukin-6, the mature onset of obesity and insulin resistance um, from a high-fat diet, for example, a high-carbohydrate diet. Uh, and what, what you can get is induced hepatocellular carcinoma promotion by IL-6. The tumor necrosis factor receptor, that induces a rapid weight gain, um, uh, also on either a high-fat diet or high-glucose diet. You get an ablation of obesity-enhanced HCC development and a reduced obesity-induced steatohepatitis. So tumor necrosis factor uh, receptor 1 is actually negative for the progression of HCC. The IKK beta gives you improved insulin sensitivity, enhanced induced HCC development, but protection from induced HCC, which suggests that IKK beta and NF-kappa B activation promote rather than inhibit uh, hepatocellular carcinoma development. P38 alpha enhances also HCC development. A couple of other genes, uh, ATG5, ATG7 and ATG5, uh, both of them have an effect on cell cycle uh, movement, uh, ATG7 spontaneously uh, mul multiply, uh, causes a multiple benign hepatocellular adenoma development accompanied by mitochondrial dysfunction, genomic stability, instability leading to HCC. The ATG5 spontaneously causes multiple benign initially hepatocellular adenoma development accompanied uh, downstream with mitochondrial swelling, a P62 accumulation, oxidative stress, more genomic damage, and ultimately HCC. So this, these are some of the other genes that you know, we, could, we could pull papers out of the literature. We could talk about them just like I did with CCND1 or PKAM2 uh, or CMIC, any of the other genes that we've looked at that have been basically oncogenic for the progression of HCC. So tentatively, let's finish our mid-course conclusion right here. Hepatosteatosis promotes hepatocellular carcinoma development or progression through an enhancement of liver inflammation and a disruption of autophagy, and, and in some instances, apoptosis. Insulin resistance and diabetes may be upregulated uh, as a pathogenic process, but it's still induced or correlated positively with hepatosteatosis. Regardless, uh, in all, uh, in all um, research that so far have been reported, obesity seems to be linked to hepatocellular carcinoma. So obesity enhances this HCC development through a lipid accumulation within the hepatocyte, 
leads to a chronic low-grade liver inflammation, and that is going to involve a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines and adipokines. I talked about those at the very beginning of this discussion. Glucose utilization ultimately promotes then a fatty liver, which uh, places glycolysis as the main pathobiochemical mediator of hepatocellular carcinoma. So glucose utilization shuts down beta oxidation, so you get the accumulation of lipids, and also you get uh, this production of uh, fatty acids because of all the glycolytic influx. So you cause a double increase in lipid accumulation in the liver, which induces this inflammatory response. That's why steatohepatitis is uh, a precursor to hepatocellular carcinoma. We also have talked to you about the fact that glycolytic enzymes like phosphorylfructokinase 1 and 2 and pyruvate kinase play numerous pleiotropic roles in all of that pathobiochemical collapse into hepatocellular carcinoma. While weight loss, for example, by bariatric surgery, diet or exercise can diminish metabolic syndrome and in some instances even can uh, take a page out of the uh, T2D, that is um, uh, type 2 diabetes, other therapeutic interventions may be required ultimately to address hepatocellular carcinoma, such as uh, pharmaceuticals uh, targeting uh, those various genes we've been discussing. The current clinical guidelines in HCC still target an immune activation of T cells. So they cause CTL4 blockade or PD1 blockade. So there are a lot of monoclonal antibodies that are functioning there. There's, there's generic chemotherapy that's still used in hepatocellular carcinoma, although that is definitely uh, frontline def uh, defense. It normally doesn't really add much to life expectancy when a person does have HCC. There's also um, uh, receptor tyrosine kinase inhibition, particularly uh, those associated uh, with uh, the genes that regulate transcription factors. Um, you could, that, that has also been so a lot of inhibitors of the um, uh, uh, receptor uh, tyrosine kinases are also becoming more important for clinical ablation of hepatocellular carcinoma. There's also some limited surgery that's done and, of course, uh, leading to transplantation where that's feasible. That becomes uh, ultimately the way that you get uh, what you could call in parentheses a cure if a person has full-blown hepatocellular carcinoma. And that may not actually cure. It just may just give you uh, an extension of lifespan from, say, 12 months to 18 months or two years, long enough maybe for you to, to uh, show up for a transplant if you're young enough, healthy enough. And you don't have like chronic disease state, other chronic disease states, which are often associated with obesity, such as cardiovascular disease or other cancers or uh, neurophysiological uh, disturbances. Any of those things can lead to not being a good candidate for liver transplant, particularly if you're older and you've had these chronic diseases for a long time. So we're going to um, go next into protease inhibition, proteases and hepatocellular carcinoma. We're going to start talking about the alpha-1 antitrypsin and how it's related to the pathogenesis of hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, we're going to start off with a paper published in 2012 from Hepatitis Monthly, uh, and that's where we're going to pick up on next time. But we're not going to start that today because it's a whole other uh, unit that I want to get involved in. So we're going to stop here and... Uh,
Hopefully you, uh, you're getting um, what I'm trying to generate for you is a full understanding of this disease complex, hepatocellular carcinoma, by introducing to you a lot of the genes, a lot of the uh, modifications of metabolism that are associated with the progression of disease and why this disease is so insidious and so deadly is because once you get a, a liver uh, uh, event such as steatohepatitis, and you lead them from an inflammatory response because of the increase in, in lipid deposits in the liver, the next phase can sometimes go down that very dark hallway leading to hepatocellular carcinoma. And hopefully I'm trying to explain to you how that happens. So we're going to stop here. So again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now. <laughs>